This morning's reading is taken from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sue. Good morning, everybody. Please do keep that uh, Bible passage open. And uh, we're going to look at the subject of redeemed priorities from these three verses, and you'll also have a little help on the screen. Thank you so much, David. Um, Some while ago, I heard an interview on the radio. It was uh, with three mountaineers, and the interviewer was intrigued to know why the three mountaineers would risk life and limb for their hobby. Um, she quoted the fact that over 100 fatalities a year occur on Mont Blanc alone, which is hardly an encouraging statistic for a hobby like that, and she wondered why they did it. And uh, without hesitation, of course, the uh, mountaineers replied that they were all enchanted by the goal. It was the summit. It was the purpose of the exercise. It was the beauty, the remarkable beauty of the landscape that more than compensated for the costs which they endured. In fact, one of the mountaineers in the interview commented on a climber called Herzog, who wrote a little book about his exploits. In fact, he didn't write it, he dictated it, because he'd lost all his fingers to frostbite. And as far as he was concerned, losing fingers and toes was nothing compared to the wonder of that experience of reaching the summit and seeing the beauty of the landscape. It doesn't really seem adequate to call that a hobby, does it, really? Um, Their lives were dominated by what is an all-consuming purpose, a passion. It shaped their priorities, it shaped the way they used their time and their money, it even shaped the way they viewed their life and how how they saw death. And of course, um, we Christians would want to affirm that the call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to wholehearted commitment in every area of life. It should define everything about us. It should create entirely new priorities. Uh, This week I met with uh, someone many of you will know, Mark Green, who works for the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. We were in a small group discussing the mission of the church. And he said, unfortunately, mission in the church has come to mean this. It's on the screen, this is what he said to recruit the people of God to use some of their leisure time to join the mission initiatives of church-paid workers. In other words, it is, as he implies, leisure time activity. Now, the great thing about this little series, which we've had at St. Andrew's, on the subject of work, is deliberately to underline that Christian discipleship is not simply defined in terms of how many Christian activities we attend or even how much evangelism in which we are engaged. We are committed to the priority of following Jesus Christ in every area of life. We dismiss the sacred 
secular divide, which suggests these two things are different arenas. We are committed to the priority of serving Jesus Christ in all of life, and that embraces everything about us and 100% of our time. So in this final session on work, um, I've been asked to comment on one specific priority, and that is how we deploy the money with which we have been entrusted. Um, Earlier in 1 Timothy 6, in this chapter, Paul has already issued warnings about the desire for wealth. But in these verses, uh, 17 to 19, he turns to those who are already wealthy. And clearly there were rich people in Timothy's congregation. The church obviously met in such people's homes. And Paul doesn't tell them to go and sell everything, as Jesus did once, you remember, to a rich official. But instead, he's urging them and us to reassess our priorities. So I offer four redeemed priorities from this uh, uh, little section of 1 Timothy 6. Here's the first. Gratitude not guilt. Um, I can imagine that for some people here, reading yet another Bible passage about money makes their heart sink. As a a relatively wealthy group of people, at least in global terms, must we once again endure an appeal to give more money? And it can easily induce a sense of guilt, I think. You know, as luck would have it, we are born in the Western world. We live In England, we live in Oxford. Some of us live in North Oxford. All of us are relatively uh, well off. We have a reasonable standard of living. So it's very important to see the first idea which Paul introduces in this little section. It's in verse 17 on the screen. God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I know it's almost a shock to use the word. Enjoyment. Uh, Like most waitresses that I encounter these days, God says, enjoy. And with all of the good gifts which he provides, that is the call. Paul, of course, was tackling some false teaching called asceticism, which was there in, uh, in Ephesus. And that suggested there was no place to enjoy food or enjoy marital sex or enjoy a good Merlot. In fact, he says in chapter 4, the words are on the screen, uh, he describes this kind of false teaching. They forbid people to marry and, they, and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So as we think about the resources that we have, Paul is trying to underline that the good creator, the loving father, is the gracious and the generous giver of all things. And that is something to be received with thanksgiving, with gratitude. We are to enjoy, we are to receive these things in that spirit. Of course, the passage doesn't support uh, self-indulgence. It doesn't support arrogance, as we'll see in just a minute. But I won't display those qualities of self-indulgence or pride or arrogance if I truly realize that everything I have is a result of God's grace and generosity. In fact, the solution to greed is gratitude. And that leads to the second priority that he then begins to unpack in these verses, and that is dependence, not self-reliance. If 
everything we have, including our monthly salary, is a gift from God. It is to be used and enjoyed wholeheartedly in line with his purposes. Then there is no room for arrogance or for pride. Command, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Now, all of us know that having money can breed a certain self-reliance, even pride. Uh, we want money so that we can hedge against disaster, so that we can build some security, so that we can be self-sufficient, so that we can be self-reliant. But if we focus just on those material securities and not on God, who is the giver of all of these good things, then we're heading for trouble. In fact, James exposes this danger. You may know his, his little uh, letter is full of penetrating advice to the rich and the poor. And he writes some words to those who are wealthy and who think they're in control, that they're in charge of their lives. This is what he says in chapter 4 and verse 13. It's on the screen. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Um, James is describing there the spirit of secular independence, acting as if you control the future. And he uses a picture which his readers would immediately recognize. Uh, the Jews were the great traders of the ancient world. In fact, they were often given free citizenship in new cities which were being founded because nearly always trade and commerce followed them. And the picture is of some entrepreneur sitting at the table with a map open, and he sees where a new city is going to be founded. So he decides he'll go there, he'll trade for a year, he'll make a fast buck, and he'll come home a wealthy man. And James says, well, that is foolish arrogance. You're claiming to be the proud master of the future. You're guilty of presumption that suggests that if you decide this, then it automatically will happen. Why, he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't even know if you'll have a life tomorrow. And so Paul says exactly the same here in our passage in verse 17. Wealth, like life, is completely uncertain. In fact, the financial turmoil of the last five years has reminded many, many people in our continent of that reality. So Paul says, don't place your hope there. Place your hope fully in God. That's the priority which he's underlining. Dependence, not self-reliance. Be single-minded. Be totally committed to God. Just because you have a little wealth, don't fall into the trap of presumptuous self-confidence. Don't base your life, don't base your future hopes on money. In fact, I think the uncertainty of life is not a cause for trusting in retirement plans or insurance or pension, important as those things are obviously uh, in our context. And neither does the uncertainty of life push us to fear or to passivity. The uncertainty of life, the uncertainty of wealth, is a reason for realizing our complete dependence on the God who gives all things. So Paul underlines that. Hope in God. 
don't put your trust in these things. Well, if these two priorities are clear, first of all, gratitude, and secondly, dependence, in other words, they both come from knowing that everything we have comes from God, it will lead to a third priority which Paul next addresses, and that is generosity, not greed. Uh, Some of you might have read uh, Clive Hamilton's book called Affluenza. It's subtitled, When Too Much is Never Enough. And he says, in rich countries today, consumption consists of people spending money they don't have to buy goods they don't need to impress people they don't like. And um, it's obvious, isn't it, that we live in a culture which is obsessed by consumption, by materialism. And that priority can easily corrupt us as well. So Paul now highlights what true wealth, true riches really means. In fact, the passage we're looking at, 17 to 19, is just one sentence in Greek. It's a typical uh, complex uh, sentence by Paul. And he's playing with the word riches. You've noticed it probably bubble up several times. Here's Here's a paraphrase. The rich are not to trust in riches, but in God, who richly gives all things, and therefore they're to be rich in good deeds and thereby lay up riches for the future. The point is, you can be materially rich, but spiritually poor. The truly rich person is described in verse 18. That is, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So our calling is to use our wealth, to use our possessions, our resources, in line with our whole life discipleship, our total commitment to serve God and his priorities. We are stewards of the good gifts that he's given, and if God has entrusted us with much, it means just that. He has trusted us to use it generously, to share it joyfully. Of course, in a congregation like ours, that will apply to us differently. Some of us in the church are under considerable financial pressure, Some families are finding it quite hard to meet their commitments. And often both parents must be working outside the home. But even we are called to act with this same spirit of gratitude, dependence, and generosity. Uh, Other spouses make the decision not to work in terms of employment so as to be available to support others. It might be in their family, in terms of children or elderly relatives, or it might be to support others beyond the family. And that, too, is acting generously. So I don't pretend that finding the balance is easy uh, for many of us, but what the New Testament does underline is, I think, quite clear. We are to share our resources, that may or may not be money, and we are to share those resources which may or may not be substantial, in this spirit, to be rich in good deeds, to be joyful in sharing with others. That's the priority. Um, I do connect with a few churches around the place, and I have to say that the spirit of generosity amongst so many people here at St. Andrews is really fantastic. I think it does honor God, the generous giver. Um, There's doubtless more that we can do, so we're called to spur one another on to good works, to good deeds, to be really wealthy in that area. 
And that leads to the last theme, the last priority which Paul highlights. Eternity, not time. Verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So, like those mountaineers, Paul is saying the perspective of the ultimate destination, the summit, that perspective really matters. That shapes priorities and decisions and value systems. In fact, he sets up the contrast. He says you can either grasp riches in the present age, or you can grasp, as he puts it, lay hold of life that is truly life. It's a lovely little expression to describe eternal life, the life to which God calls us. Jesus, of course, said exactly the same. He sets up the same contrast in the Sermon on the Mount, the well-known phrase, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. It's a contrast between time and eternity. The question is, what do you value? How do you want to invest? Now, Jesus makes exactly the point that we've seen already from 1 Timothy 6, and that is the problem with investing in this present moment is that there is no security, there is no guarantee of a long-term return uh, where moth and rust corrupt. If your treasure is on earth, then it's vulnerable to decay. Now, of course, neither Paul nor Jesus is suggesting in the phrase that Paul's using here that by doing good works, you therefore secure riches in heaven. You secure your place in heaven. No, that is a gift of God's grace through what Jesus Christ has done for us. What they're trying to do is urge us to reorientate, to have new priorities, to put first things first. In fact, as you look at these verses and what Jesus said, it's not actually to do with wealth or material possessions at all. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So anything where your heart is, that might be your family or your particular relationship, it might be your intellect, it might be your career, it might be your status, it might be your income, none of these things actually survive death. So Jesus says, why focus your entire life on stuff which doesn't even last? Why give your heart to that? He's asking a fundamental question about what we really value in life. And that's precisely what Paul is doing in this final verse. He calls us to live in such a way that has eternity in view. And maybe there might be some amongst us who are not sure about their life and their future. And then I want, therefore, to urge you to listen to what Jesus is saying, to accept what Jesus offers. Commit your life to him. And what Paul and Jesus are both saying is, don't trust anything else. Trust Jesus for forgiveness, for new life, for hope for the future. Or as Paul puts it, hope in God. Hold on to life which really is life. That's the value system that really matters. So it's true for all of us. Give our lives and energies and resources to those things that will last forever. Live for him and for his kingdom. Well, these are the priorities for handling the good gifts which God has given us, including our wealth. They're summarized. Gratitude, not guilt. Dependence, not self-reliance. 
Generosity, not greed. Eternity, not time. Those are the redeemed priorities for whole life discipleship. It is about owning without treasuring. It is about possessing without being possessed. And like the uh, mountaineers who I listened to, their focus was sharp, their priorities were clear. Let's live our lives for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, looking to the summit, looking to that final horizon, putting our hope in God, living in the light of eternity. And Jesus went on to say, then you don't need to worry. Everything else will fall into place. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a society which says completely the opposite of what we've just been considering. And we thank you that when Jesus came, he stepped into life's window and he swapped all the price tags round so that what was of real value, those things that were of great value in our world are of little value. And those things which are of little value are to him of great value. And we pray therefore that with the challenge of being bombarded by the consumption and materialism of our age and the legitimate desire to care for those who are around us and to support our families and to have appropriate means to live when we're older, you will help us not to be blind to the priorities which Paul expresses in, in this one sentence to churches all around the world, to live with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've given us. And we're especially aware of that here in Oxford. To live with dependence, trusting God to care for us now and in the future, not self-reliance. To express generosity, to joyfully share with others here and around the world. And to live for eternity, not just for this present moment. Help us, Lord, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.